Good morning. Good morning. I'm going to be reading um, the sermon text today, which is from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's, I count it a great privilege to be with you here today, and I love the little sign I'm seeing right now on the pulpit. Show them Jesus. That's why we're, that's why we're here, to lift up and magnify the name of Christ. I'm blessed to be here as uh, your pastor, ministers to my congregation uh, at Webster Bible Church. Um, I was called there, as, as Matt mentioned, about 10 years ago, 10 and a half years ago, about a year before the Lord called your pastor here. And uh, we met actually very early on. I, I want to say it was at a, I thought it was a, at a high school basketball game at Lima Christian School. I'm, I'm pretty sure he came over and introduced himself to me at that point, and we've been friends ever since. And uh, I'll tell you this, and I say this with all sincerity, um, that my love and respect for your pastor only grows deeper with time. Um, he is truly a kindred spirit when it comes to the gospel ministry, and I, I thank God for him, and I'm sure that all of you do as well. He is truly um, a gifted and humble servant of God. Um, that is a man of character, a man of the word, a man who cherishes his family and loves the people of God. Uh, the, the, and, and no congregation more than Grace Baptist Church. And uh, so I count it a great privilege and honor uh, to stand in this pulpit today. And it also doesn't hurt that he's a fellow alumnus of Southern Seminary. You know, it's just, uh, it's an exclusive club, you know, and we guys got to stick together. Um, he has provided excellent leadership to the uh, Reformation Society, uh, has been mentioned a couple of times already. And, and this network of pastors and Christian leaders 
exist to encourage one another, equip one another, embolden one another uh, to bring biblical reformation in the church. You know, it's so easy for us, if we're not careful, to, to stray to the right or to the left from the truth of God's Word. And we always want to do exactly what the God's Word says in the power of His Holy Spirit. And this society is really a pastoral fraternity of sorts to help one another do that. So it's encouragement, accountability, there's a sense of camaraderie. And uh, Pastor Dave has just provided excellent leadership to that society. I'm so thankful for the pulpit exchange that we can have today. And one of the reasons we do this is uh, just as we've gotten to know one another as pastors and have heard so much about one another's congregations, it's an opportunity, as has already been mentioned, for you to hear a fresh voice, uh, and we trust a faithful voice uh, to the scriptures to let you know that there are other pastors in this region who expound God's word faithfully, and we are brothers in Christ striving together for the sake of the gospel. And it also gives pastors the opportunity to let them know that there are other faithful flocks out there in addition to our own, that we're all part of God's family. If, if we trust the Lord to save us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the authority of Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Uh, that's what binds us together as brothers, as pastors, as churches. And um, so it's just another opportunity to enjoy fellowship with God's people. And in that sense, um, my wife Ruthie and I have been doubly blessed. Uh, as was already mentioned, my wife uh, got the opportunity to meet uh, so many of you ladies at the end of October at your Women of the Word conference. And uh, so she has enjoyed your fellowship, and now I get to do that today. My wife would have been with me today, uh, but she could not pass up the opportunity to spend a week in Williamsburg with our daughter and three grandchildren. So um, she's probably figuring I can hear him any Sunday. I'm going to go be with my daughter and my grandkids. So, uh, but she does send her greetings to all of you, and particularly you ladies that she really enjoyed getting to know a couple of months ago. Isn't Christian fellowship wonderful? It really is. Even if we're meeting for the first time, um, there is an immediate bond that we have in Jesus Christ. An immediate bond we have because of Jesus Christ, who has made us the family of God. You know, when I think about how there is a bond in Christ that we have even as we meet for the first time, I thought, how much more strong should that bond be for those that meet together one or more times per week over a period of months or years to worship and serve God together? And that's what we have in a local gospel-centered congregation. And that's the theme I want to focus on this morning to encourage you as we begin this new year, this first Lord's Day of another year. Again, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, the passage that has already been read, let me just give you a quick little backdrop to the text. Romans was written by Paul near the end of his third missionary journey, most likely from Corinth, around A.D. 57. Even though Paul had not yet made it to Rome, that's obvious in the letter, and even in the part that we read this morning, uh, the gospel had already traveled there. A lot of times we're thinking that the gospel really spread primarily through Paul throughout the Roman Empire, but it's important for us to remember that there were what we might call uh, lesser known names or maybe even unknown names in the New Testament where people were faithfully sharing the gospel with their neighbors. 
We know from Acts 2, when Peter preached at Pentecost, uh, the text there in chapter 2 says that the crowd consisted of people from every nation under heaven, and it goes on to specifically mention visitors from Rome. And so evidently, some of these people that had been there at, from Rome at, at Pentecost in Jerusalem on that day heard the words of life. They heard the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection and how we can have salvation through him, and, and they believed. Uh, and, and they went back to Rome, and they shared the gospel with their neighbors. They told them about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so before Paul ever got to Rome, there were people who already believed on account of God's grace working through the faithful witness of those who had come to believe at Pentecost. And, and a church had been established there. And uh, we know from Paul's personal greetings at the end of the letter that he had already met some of these believers from the church at Rome, uh, such as Aquila and Priscilla and some others. I think he mentions uh, over two dozen names um, in, in his uh, closing. To, and he knew many of these people by name, even though he had not actually been to Rome to take part in their assembly. He met several of them in the course of his missionary travels. And, and I'll say more about that in a moment, how that came to be. But Paul was looking forward to seeing these people again and, and meeting the church as a whole for the first time once he was finally able to get to Rome. From the very start of the letter, you sense this strong bond between Paul and these believers, many of whom he had not actually met personally. The main text for this morning's sermon is, is verses 8 to 15, but I ask that Andrew begin at the beginning of the chapter because I wanted you to capture not only the flow of the text, but the fervor of Paul's spirit as he writes to this church that he is anxious to meet. Paul's words to them over 2,000 years ago are God's words to us today. God's word is living and active, and it is meant for our instruction and encouragement as his people today. So I'm going to have you look with me just one more time as, as a whole text, specifically our sermon text for today, Romans 1, 8 to 15. It's been read once, but let's look at the actual sermon text once again, verses 8 to 15. This is the word of the Lord through Paul. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your precious word. We ask that it would run swiftly this morning from our ears to our heart and then from our heart to our mouths, our hands, and our feet. 
Grow us in our love for you and for one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You saw at the beginning of this chapter, of this letter, that Paul introduces himself as what? As a servant of Christ Jesus. One who has been called by God, set apart for the gospel, and, and then later on he, he refers to the recipients, those believers receiving his letters, as those who are also, and I quote, loved by God and called to be saints. This is their gospel identity. They have been called by God. They are loved by God. They are His people. And it's important for us to remember today that God has called every believer to serve His Son, Jesus Christ. We are all servants of Christ. This is their gospel identity. Paul refers repeatedly in the first seven verses to their calling. This is a high calling because we have been called by God to belong to Jesus Christ. Amen? It's a high calling. It's a holy calling because we are called to be saints. We are called to be holy as God is holy. We are to become imitators of Christ as His beloved people. And brothers and sisters, it's to be a happy calling because because of Christ, Paul says in verse 7, we have received God's grace and his peace because of the gospel. And the word gospel literally means what? Good news. Good news. Does your life reflect that the gospel is good news? That your calling is a holy calling. It's a high calling, and it is a happy calling. This is our gospel identity. There's no greater calling in life than to be a son or daughter of the living God. There is no higher calling in life than to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no greater privilege in life than to gather with God's people to worship and serve the Lord together. And I'll say this, that a sure sign that you have lost a sense of your calling in Christ that you have lost a sense of your gospel identity is that you do not relate to other Christians as you should. Say, Pastor Matt, why do you say that? I say that based on the words of our Lord Jesus himself in John 13, 35. Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if what? If you have love for one another. As I have loved you, so you ought also to love one another. So that is to say the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ, binds us together. That is the bond that we share, our common salvation. And so as I thought about a text to, to preach to a congregation, most of whom I don't know, but knowing that God's word is applicable to all of us, I thought, what, uh, what would be an appropriate theme for a new year? And I would say as the church of Jesus Christ, it is a great, a new year is a great opportunity for renewing relationships. Renewing relationships in the family of God. I think that would be especially appropriate for this year. Um, one of the things we do at the Reformation Society is to present various papers, uh, theological, biblical in nature, but definitely have a practical import 
for the sake of us pastors and churches, again, to, to equip us and encourage us in the work of the ministry. And uh, your pastor, as part of uh, leading the Reformation Society, is, is diligent in contacting us months in advance, approaching us individually, asking us to do certain papers on certain topics. And he wants to give us plenty of lead time so that we can be working on that. And uh, Pastor Dave came to me at the end of the last, I think it was that, probably have to be at the start of last summer, so uh, at least seven or eight months ago. And uh, he said, Matt, um, next year in March, would you be willing to present a paper that I would like to be titled COVID-19 and the Church, a retrospective? And I thought, retrospective. We are nowhere near this thing being retro, are we? It's going to be a great opening line to my presentation. Maybe a perspective, but I don't know about a retrospective. This crisis continues to impact every part of our lives, including our church life. My guess is that, that you, like, like Webster Bible Church and so many others, what was it, about a year and a half ago, shut down for a number of weeks. I, I think we were shut down from public services for 14 weeks. And when we were open about a week later than any other church in our area. But then after that shutdown, where, where there was not those assemblies for worship week to week, then everyone began to come back. The, the church doors were reopened for public worship. And, and I don't know what the, the status is with Grace Baptist Church, but, but I know that across America in general, the general statistics are that a third of the people who attended relatively faithful before COVID have not yet returned to church. A third of all churchgoers have not returned to date. Those who have returned uh, hold different views on masks, vaccinations. I'm sure you all agree. Our church, we have a few disagreements here and there. Plenty of room for disagreement on everything COVID connected. And then you add to that other polarizing issues like politics, racial tension, social justice, and the like. And you've got a recipe for friction in the church. You've got a recipe for possibly fracturing the church. But in Romans 1, God shows us a better way. In Romans 1, we see a path to renewal. In Romans 1, specifically verses 8 to 15, Paul shares four things about himself in relation to his fellow believers that show us a right perspective and a positive approach to building up the body of Christ. I like to think of these as four statements that fuel gospel-centered relationships. If you're taking notes, that's essentially what the heading over these statements are. Four statements that fuel gospel-centered relationships. Paul says essentially four things in this text. 
about himself in relation to other believers. And for the sake of a simple outline that I hope is easy to remember, I've condensed these statements for the outline. But we'll look at the full scope of Paul's remarks as we explore the text together. And the first statement that Paul makes that fuels gospel-centered relationships is this. I thank my God for you. I thank my God for you. The full statement appears in verse 8 of Romans 1. Paul says, first, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Notice that Paul refers to God as my God. Paul has a personal relationship with his Creator, the Sovereign God. God is not some distant deity to Paul. God is his Father in heaven. And Paul's language of intimacy reflects that. He is my God. I think of David's prayer in Psalm 18, where he said, I love you, O Lord, you are my strength my rock, my fortress, my Savior. Is He yours? The reason that Paul could refer to God as my God is found in the very next phrase. Through Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was Paul's connection to God the Father. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, sin creates a barrier between us and God. Sin separates us from a holy God because God cannot look upon sin but Jesus Christ broke down that barrier through his death and resurrection for sinners Paul would later say in Romans chapter 5 verse 1 therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ as has already been expressed so well in the, the songs that we have sung, the prayers that have been prayed, the scripture that's been read. We have all sinned against a holy God. And God is just and He is right to condemn us for our sins and to cast us away from His holy presence for all eternity because He is a holy God. He is a God of justice. He is a God of righteousness who will by no means pardon the guilty and yet praise Him forever and ever. He's also a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of grace. And out of great, His great love for sinners, God sent His one and only Son, the God-man, to live the perfect life in our place. A life of obedience that we should have lived, but we have not lived. For all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And yet, though Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience to God the Father, he died the death of a criminal. Why? Because he died in our place. Jesus Christ became a curse for us. By the way, I'm especially mindful of this during the Christmas season. Many of us have seen nativity scenes throughout our communities, even maybe in front of churches that don't preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Years ago when I was but a little boy, my my dad wrote a little rhyme to remind us of the importance of Jesus' birth. And since we're so close to Christmas just being passed, I want to share it with you quickly, even though I didn't have it here in my notes. Even as we sang that opening hymn, Good Christian Men Rejoice. Here's what my dad wrote. He said, Amidst all the tinsel and trappings, the holiday glittering gloss, God help us to see past the wrappings, remembering Christ and the cross. While many grow tearful and tender when scenes of the stable they see, to little Lord Jesus they'll render their thanks, but not the Christ of the tree. Now marvel we must at the manger, the babe in the Bethlehem birth. But oh, let us stay not a stranger to why Jesus entered this earth. For Christ in the cradle could never have saved us from infinite loss, but praise him forever and ever. He's also the Christ of the cross. Amen? Christ died the death that we deserve to die, to take on the punishment for our sin. And three days later, he arose from the grave just as he said he would. He said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord as the Father has commissioned me. I have power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. And Jesus proved that power and authority when he rose from the grave three days after his death, proving that he had conquered death. He had conquered sin. He had conquered Satan for all who would believe in him. And God the Father joyfully accepted the sacrifice of his son. That's why he sent his son to become a sacrifice for us. And now the good news of the gospel is that though we are sinners who deserve eternal damnation, God will save every single person who comes to him in faith, trusting in Jesus Christ, his son alone for salvation. No matter how great our sins are against God, and they are great, his mercy is more. His grace is greater. And the Bible promises us that whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I just urge you today, if you have never put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation, do today. Do it today. Today can be the day of your salvation if you will but believe. Because God's grace comes to us through Christ, our gratitude goes to God through Christ. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, through Him then, through Christ, let us offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. And according to Scripture, our sacrifice of praise includes thanking God for our fellow believers. That's why Paul says in verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. 
No exceptions. All of you. In fact, if you were to read Paul's letters to the various churches throughout the New Testament, you will see that Paul gives thanks to God for multiple reasons for all of them. There's one exception. That is, you don't really find a thanking God for his fellow believers at the beginning of the book of Galatians. And the reason there is obvious. Paul says, I was shocked to find that you are turning away so quickly from the gospel that was preached to you. Paul had nothing to commend them in that, and the situation was so urgent, he had to get right to the task at hand and bring them back to the truth of the gospel. But in all the other churches he wrote to throughout the New Testament, Paul begins, usually very early on in the letter, in his opening greeting, thanking God for them. And thanking God for them in specific ways. Multiple times throughout his letters, he he thanked God for their faith in Christ and their love for all the saints. He thanked God for their spiritual gifts. He thanked God for their partnership in the gospel, for declaring it and defending it, standing with Paul in the defense and proclamation of the gospel. He thanked God for their work produced by faith, their labor that was motivated by love, their endurance through hard times that was inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For all these reasons and more, Paul thanked God for all of God's people. And yet, if you continue to read these letters, you know that these churches were far from perfect. They were all works in progress. And yet, Paul still thanked God for them. In this case, in his letter to the Romans, he he writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. That word proclaimed in the Greek, katangelo, could also be translated celebrated. Your faith is celebrated throughout all the world. You might recall that near the outset of the sermon I mentioned that even though Paul had not yet been to Rome, he had actually met several of these believers from Rome. He mentions them by name, two dozen or more. In the final chapter in Romans 16, as he's bidding them farewell, he, he tells them to give specific people greetings. He knows these people even though he's never been to this church. How is that? Well, we know from Acts 18, verse 2, as well as extra-biblical documents, that in A.D. 49, Emperor Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome. And so they were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. One of the couples of the Jews that were scattered were Aquila and Priscilla, whom Paul actually met in Corinth. They were part of this church. Their name appears in the final chapter. Paul um, extends them greetings by name. But there were other Jewish Christians scattered as well during this time. And as they filtered through throughout the Roman Empire, Paul encountered some of them as he preached the gospel, as he planted various churches. As they met Paul and these other believers, They celebrated their faith in Christ that that though they were kicked out of Rome, they remained committed to Jesus Christ. Some of these might have actually gotten saved through Paul's ministry and then ended up living in Rome or going back to Rome and joining the church there. 
Well, in AD 54, five years after issuing the edict, Emperor Claudius died and Jews began migrating back to Rome. So that by the time Paul wrote this letter around AD 57, most of the Jews had returned, including Aquila and Priscilla, whom Paul again greets by name. And that's why it also makes sense why, why Paul was now looking forward to an opportunity for him to finally get to Rome. The point here, though, is that Paul thanked God for this church. In another letter, Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he said, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right. Thanking God for our brothers and sisters in Christ is the first thing we ought to do. And it is the right thing to do. So the question is, is that what you do? Is that what you do? As you think about your fellow believers, particularly your fellow members here at Grace Baptist Church, is your first inclination to thank God for them, for saving them, for bringing them into His fold, for making them a part of your church family? You know, the first thing our flesh wants to do the part of us that is naturally opposed to the Holy Spirit is to criticize others in the congregation. To complain about them. Maybe fixate on certain things about them that annoy us. But the right thing to do, and the first thing to do, is to thank God for them. Think of it this way. Those who are loved by God and called to be his saints, ought to be precious to us. Those who are loved by God, and called to be saints, should be precious to us. Because the gospel of Christ binds us together. That's the first statement Paul makes that fuels gospel-centered relationships. I thank God for you. There's a second statement he makes. I constantly pray for you. The full statement appears in verses 9 and 10 of Romans 1. Paul says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Paul says, I serve God with my spirit in the gospel of his son. In other words, Paul's heart was in this. The gospel energized Paul's service to God, including his prayer life. It fueled his love for God's people. He was constantly praying for them. In another letter to a church, the church at Ephesus, Paul wrote in chapter 6, verse 18 of that epistle, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. If you want to pray well for God's people, follow the pattern of Paul's prayers. Look at how he prays for the saints in Philippians 1. In Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, Colossians 1, and other passages. 
Nothing is more powerful than to pray God's own words back to Him when interceding for one another. Scripture is the only true inspired prayers you will ever pray. To pray God's own word back to Him as you intercede for others. Paul not only prayed for God's people, but he told them so. He says, God is my witness that I am constantly praying for you. Why do you say God is my witness? Well, Paul's making a claim about his own private prayer life. He can tell them he's praying for them. We might often do that. Hey, I'm praying for you or I'll be praying for you. Do we follow through? Does our prayer life match our promises? That's why Paul says, God is my witness. He is making a claim about his own private prayer life and only God and Paul know the truth of whether that's really happening. So, so Paul is letting them know these are not just empty words. I really am praying for you and God to whom I pray is my witness. Paul is showing his accountability to God in light of what he's telling these fellow believers. God is witness to the fact that Paul really is constantly praying for them. Paul prayed all kinds of requests for God's people. And he tells us to do the same in Ephesians 6. And he not only prayed all kinds of requests, but he prayed for all of the Lord's people. Not just his close friends or his family members, the people he knew well or had a special relationship with. He was praying for all the believers in the church. And I think there's a way, truly, that we can do this in a collective sense, that you can pray for the members of Grace Baptist Church. And that is good and acceptable to God. It's pleasing to Him. But the fact that Paul lists so many people by name, I think Paul prayed for the church collectively, but he also prayed for as many people as he could individually. So in addition to encouraging you to, to pattern your prayers for God's people after Paul's prayers in the New Testament because they are inscripturated, they are God's own words through Paul, for how we ought to pray for his people, I would also encourage you to make use of your membership directory. I'm sure you have one. Don't just use it as a resource if you have to look up someone's phone number or email. Take maybe a household a day and pray through your church directory for the people that are part of the Grace Baptist Fellowship. One thing I've tried to do and I don't always do it faithfully. There are some days that I skip and, and don't systematically go through that. But I try to pray through a portion of our church directory every day. And I'm, when, when I'm being most faithful, what I'll do is I'll, let's say I pray for maybe four or five households, I might just take one of them. I realize you don't have all day to do this, but maybe just take one of them and just write a note of encouragement. Or maybe send a quick text or make a quick phone call or send them an email and let them know, hey, I want you to know I prayed for you today. Or if they're accessible in the moment, I am praying for you today. Are there any specific requests I can remember before the Lord on your behalf? 
And while we're at it, why not do what Paul did? I thank God for every one of you. And just maybe name one or two things of why you thank God for that person. I thank for, I'm thankful for how you use such and such a gift that God has given you to build up the church. I'm so thankful that the way you faithfully serve in this or that ministry. I'm so thankful that you come to church faithfully to encourage and build up the saints each Sunday. Just express a word of thanks even as you pray for them. Think of how encouraging and edifying these kinds of correspondences and conversations would be even if they last just a minute or two. Paul prayed all kinds of requests for God's people, but he had a specific request regarding the believers in Rome. Second half of verse 10. Always in my prayer, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Apparently, Paul's attempts to get to Rome at, had been unsuccessful today, perhaps due to the edict by Claudius. But now that he's dead and the edict is over, Jews are returning to Rome, maybe Paul now can finally get there too. Paul prays that this would happen somehow, that means by any way possible, by God's will, that is his providential plan. And this is just a, a sidebar, an encouragement from James not to boast or be presumptuous about our plans because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. James reminds us that our life is but a vapor and, and that's why he says instead you ought to say if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And that's what Paul does here. He prays, Lord, if you are willing, make a way. You know, it's a good habit to follow up our stated plans with two words, God willing or Lord willing. And even if we don't say it aloud, I don't think we have to say it aloud every time. But if we don't say it aloud, we ought to always be saying it in our hearts to remind ourselves that our lives are in the Lord's hands and we commit all of our plans to him even as Paul did. And Paul's prayer reflected the desire of his heart, a craving that should characterize every Christian. So he says, I not only thank God for you, and I constantly pray for you, but the third statement revealed through the prayer is, I long to see you. I long to see you. In verse 11, he expresses his motivation behind the prayer to come to them. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That word long, when he says, I long to see you, is the Greek word epipotheo. It's the same word that appears in 1 Peter 2, verse 2, which says, as newborn babes long for or crave the pure milk of the word, that you may grow with respect to your salvation. It's the same word used in 2 Corinthians 5.2 where Paul says in this tent, in this earthly body, we groan longing, epipatheo, to put on our heavenly dwelling, our glorified body. So here's, here's the idea that just as Christians are to crave God's word, just as we long to be with the Lord and receive those glorified bodies, so we ought to crave fellowship 
with God's people. Is that kind of intensity in your life? Do you crave Christian fellowship with that kind of zeal? Paul told the believers in Rome, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Paul wanted to see God's people in order to strengthen God's people spiritually. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit has blessed every single believer with at least one spiritual gift for the building up of the body of Christ. Paul will go on to list many of these gifts in chapter 12 of Romans. He lists them in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. He lists more of them in Ephesians chapter 4. The Apostle Peter, writing in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, says this, Each of you, catch that, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Paul longed to be with the church so that he might be a blessing to the church. At the same time, he didn't want to give the impression that he was God's gift to the church. I want to see you so I can strengthen you. Like, aren't you glad I finally came, the Apostle Paul? No. Paul doesn't want to give the impression that this blessing is a one-way thing. He is quick to clarify this in verse 12. He writes, that is, that we may be what? Mutually encouraged by one another's faith, both yours and mine. This is the Apostle Paul for Pete's sake. And yet Paul needed to be strengthened by fellowship with other believers. So he says, look, I want to see you so I can strengthen you with the spiritual gift God has given me, but because God has blessed every believer with spiritual gifts, I want to be strengthened by you as well. Your faith encourages me in my ministry, in my walk with Christ. It's important to remember that Christian encouragement flows in both directions. Even if you think you don't need the church, and you do, you're wrong if you think that, the church needs you. The Holy Spirit has sovereignly gifted every believer and placed him in the church body just as he wanted so that the church gets built up as every member does its part. And that's why Scripture tells us, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Don't get weary in doing good. Paul continues on in verse 13, saying, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. 
the Greek word adelphoi, and in this context it can refer to both brothers and sisters in Christ. That is, all of the members of God's family. Did you know calling fellow believers his brothers in Christ and by extension sisters in Christ as well is Paul's favorite designation for believers in the New Testament? to call them his brothers and his sisters. Paul uses this expression 127 times in his letters. That's why I like to think of our congregation as our church family. We are family. With this kinship kind of language, one commentator notes that Paul both assumes and promotes the relationship between himself and his readers as one between equal siblings who share a sense of affection, mutual responsibility, and solidarity. End quote. Because the gospel of Christ binds us together. Paul wants his brothers and sisters to know that he intended to come to them. That word intended is Protothemi. It means to determine, to plan beforehand. This is very instructive for us because it shows that Paul not only prayed to be with the church, he planned to be with the church. He was very intentional about making that happen. He was determined to do it so that unless he was providentially hindered by God, he was going to gather with his fellow believers. The problem heretofore had not been a lack of desire or effort or intentionality on Paul's part. It was a lack of opportunity. Is this the case with you? I'm glad you came out this morning. Not the best morning to be out weather-wise. But there's a reason that Scripture exhorts us as believers not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And understand what that means. It means to physically gather as an assembly of believers. And the author of Hebrews tells us why. Because left to ourselves, we get spiritually lazy. We get sluggish in the journey of faith when we try to live the Christian life on our own. Plus, we deny ourselves and others the blessings of fellowship. One thing I've really struggled with at our own church, and we've come to a place where I think it serves a good purpose now, but I, pardon me, really wanted to discontinue the live stream that we are providing. Because I don't want to make it easy for people to stay home. There are some people that are watching church when they ought to be with the church. And that's why we're following up so diligently with our members. It's a good resource to have if you're a legitimate shut-in. I had one young gentleman write me from Pennsylvania who by the grace of God received Christ as a Savior hearing the gospel through our live stream. It's one of the things God used to, okay, this serves a good purpose as long as it's held in balance. And so we're challenging our members that unless you are providentially hindered, like physically unable, you need to be gathering with the church. 
Paul's desire to be with these people personally was rooted in a sense of duty. Look at what he says in verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. In other words, Paul literally says, I am debtor. Paul was obligated to share the blessings of the gospel with others in light of God's own mercies toward him. I like what one commentator said. He said that Paul's debt was to God, but his payment was to people. Isn't that good? Paul's debt was to God, but his payment was to people. Not just a select group of people, but to everyone everywhere. And to prove his point, Paul mentions two pairs of people, the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise and the unwise. The Greeks were the culture people in the Roman Empire. They spoke Greek, most of them, and they certainly practiced the Greco-Roman way of life. Barbarian is an automatopedic word. Remember that word from uh, your elementary school days, automatopoeia? It's a word that sounds like what it means, like the boom of a firework or the ding-dong of a doorbell. Well, that's what the word barbarian is. The Greeks used the word barbaros to, to mock the way that uncultured languages, those that didn't speak Greek, sounded. Barbar. 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 Just nonsensical noises. They would use this to mock them, and they called them barbarians by extension. They looked down on these people, saw them as uncultured, as inferior to them. And yet Paul says, hey, I'm indebted to all people, whether they're cultured or not. I'm indebted to share the gospel both to Greeks and to barbarians. Then he says, to the wise and to the foolish. This may be just a reiteration of that first classification, expressing it in different terms. Or Paul may be referring to people who, regardless of their culture, pride themselves on their intellect versus others who don't. Later in chapter 1, Paul refers to those who claimed to be wise but became fools because despite what they knew about God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor did they give Him thanks. These people needed to hear the gospel. Paul says as a result of their foolishness, their minds became dark and confused. They needed the light of the gospel. People that were not part of the intelligentsia needed to hear the gospel. You see, Rome, like most cities in America today, and our nation as a whole, was a melting pot for all sorts of people. Educated and uneducated, cultured and uncultured, upper class, lower class, natives, and foreigners. Paul saw himself as a gospel debtor to all of them. Regardless of how humans classify one another, Paul knew that there was only one classification that ultimately mattered, the saints and the ain'ts. You're either saved or you're not. You're either a believer or an unbeliever. You're either on your way to heaven, you're on your way to hell. You know, even we as Christians can be tempted to classify people the world's way instead of God's way. We can become prideful because of God's blessings on us and start to look at, to see other people as inferior to us. 
because they don't know our language or they're a different skin color or they're in a different social economic class. When we get that way, when we start to classify people the world's way instead of God's way, it shows that we're losing our sense of gospel identity. Because of God's love for us, we are debtors to all people everywhere to share God's love with them. And this takes us to Paul's fourth and final statement in verse 16. And this is a short one. Remember what he says so far. I thank my God for you. I constantly pray for you. I long to be with you. And now fourthly, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. Again, the full statement appears in verse 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I came across one commentator who wrote that Paul certainly couldn't have been referring to the believers in Rome because, and I quote, he says, although as this verse might seem to suggest, for they had already responded to the gospel, end quote. But I think that is exactly who Paul is referring to. He is writing to the church. That is the you in verse 15. And it's a good reminder to us, as one brother has already reminded us this morning, that non-Christians are not the only ones who need to hear the gospel. We, as believers, need to hear the gospel as well. We need the gospel preached to us constantly and ever more deeply so that we can continue to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Colin Cruz points out, quote, Paul's exposition of the gospel would enhance the existing faith of his audience. Unquote. Brothers and sisters, we need to be strengthened in the gospel we have already come to believe and embrace. That we may grow with respect to our salvation. I was reminded of this just a day or two ago. I was doing some chores around the house and I was listening to a playlist of instrumental hymns when one of then came on that I quite frankly hadn't heard in quite some time, or I, I should say hadn't sung really since my childhood. I love to tell the story. How many of you know that hymn? Several of you. And even though it was instrumental, the, the stanzas immediately came to mind. And one stanza in particular crossed my mind. It goes like this. I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. The more we love the gospel, the more we want to hear the gospel over and over and over again. That's why Paul says, I am eager. Paul is prepared to share the gospel, but this doesn't, you know, your translation might say, I am ready to preach the gospel, but the word literally means eager. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also. And brothers and sisters, that's why we gather each Lord's Day. The very root of our gathering, the purpose of our gathering, whether we're singing, praying, reading, preaching, is to proclaim the gospel to one another. The gospel of Christ is what binds us together. So that with one mind and with one voice, we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.